Several years ago, while I was in the process of, of getting our boxes loaded up, it, this was probably over, this was like 22 years ago. In this process, somehow I injured a muscle in my shoulder. And so throughout the day, I'm just working and I don't even realize it, but at night, suddenly the muscle starts cramping up on me and I am in so much pain, I can't sleep on my bed, I'm too restless, I try sleeping on the couch and I eventually end up on the floor. And can I be honest with you, it takes a lot for me to cry in pain, but I found myself on my living room floor in tears because the pain was so intense. And I was taking ibuprofen, but it was, it was so painful. Now, it eventually began to relax. I, I did get a little bit of sleep, but it was restless. But the next day, actually the next couple of days, I'm sitting down to do work, and it is so hard to be focused. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in so much physical pain that it's just hard to concentrate? You're trying to get something done, and you just can't. I... Now, some of us have been in that much physical pain where it's just such a distraction, but I think all of us have been in an emotional or a spiritual pain. And that pain, for some of you, you're carrying that pain with you right now. Maybe during worship, you were distracted because you kept thinking about this problem just over and over. Maybe it was a problem with a boss or an employee, or maybe it was a problem in your home, a marriage, a child, a relative, a next-door neighbor, and you were distracted during worship. But what can really distract us is when that problem is painful for us. And our minds just start wandering and thinking about this and trying to solve it. And we can become so worried. We can become so fearful. We, become, we can become wondering, God, where are you in this situation? And we can be totally distracted. Maybe even right now, as you hear me speaking, and I'm about to preach from the Word in our series, Unveiling Jesus, and we're going to be turning to Revelation 4. So do that right now. You just probably look up and say, what, 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 what's going, where are we? Because you're distracted. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying, if, if you just did that because you were trying to do something on your phone, I understand that. But pain can distract us. Spiritual pain can distract us. It can distract us in our focus on the Lord. It can distract us in our day-to-day lives. I want to talk about that because there is pain that is all around us. And if we don't learn how to handle that pain... We will become ineffective in the kingdom of God. That's how drastic this issue is in each and every single one of our lives. God has, this is what Ephesians 2 says, God has good works for you to walk in. Do you believe that? God has good works for you, that he prepared before the creation of the world. And he is this craftsman, he's crafting you, and he is using this pain in your life, whatever physical, emotional, spiritual pain, He's using it to craft you. Many times we don't see that because we have this little picture. It's like, you know, a horse that has the blinders on and they see just what's in front. And today God is going to have us just step back a little bit and see the big picture, at least a glimpse of it. And he's going to give us some truths to be able to deal with that pain. And every single one of us, without exception, has been through some sort of pain, maybe even this morning, and you're distracted. You're, you're, you're off course, and God wants to bring, hey, right here. Here's my amazing purposes for you that I'm wanting you to walk in. Let's not get distracted. I'm going to read to you from this particular passage. Chapters 4 and 5 are the throne room of God. It's a vision that John has, starting now in verse 1, chapter 4. I'm just reading chapter 4, that's it. After this, remember the seven letters, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 
elders, other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Remember, these are symbols. Seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God, or the perfection of the Spirit of God, if you will. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes. May I just say, from Ezekiel 1 and 10, we see these four living creatures, by the way. They, they, they come uh, symbolically in just a, a little, look a little differently, but these are those four living creatures. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six, excuse me, six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay, or that is, they cast their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, as I said right before this, I feel like I need to repeat this. Sometimes we feel pain and the only thing that we want at that moment is for the pain to stop. Man, I can't tell you, when I strained that muscle, that's all I wanted. I just wanted the pain to stop. But that pain sometimes is not just physical for us, it's spiritual or emotional. And sometimes when we are worshiping, we just want God to do something and our focus becomes very inward. We just want this pain to stop. When we're studying the word, we just want, we don't want teaching, we don't want knowledge, we just want, God, give me something that's going to ease this pain. What I'm going to do right now is I want to be able to help ease that pain in your life. But we need to do it. And that's why the word of God has given us. We do it through truth. To equip you with truth that if you know something, a truth, a principle or principles, that you're going to be able to walk this out effectively. So that's what I'm going to try and do. But to get there, I need to walk you through certain bits of knowledge. I want to give you some understanding, but when you get this understanding, we're going to go back to this chapter and we're going to see things and we're going to, we're going to learn some things that will be able to help ease that pain in your life. The first thing I want us to see here is there is an open door in heaven. Understand that the first three chapters, <coughs> excuse me, John has a vision of Jesus. It, remember, it's on the Lord's Day. He's on the island of Patmos. And a voice behind him that sounds like a trumpet speaks to him and he turns around. Where is John? He's not in heaven. He is somewhere on the earth. I mean, Patmos, but he's on the earth. And Jesus comes down to him and speaks to him and actually dictates seven letters to the seven churches. And we've been through each of those letters. But now something different is happening. Now, John looks up and there is an open door. Remember, an open door is an open opportunity. And he is invited by Jesus himself to come up here. Do you see that in the text? Jesus extends him and says, come up here. And what does John, obviously John is immediately in the spirit and he is caught up into heaven and he has these amazing visions throughout the book of Revelation. It's just one vision after another, one after the other after the other. And John is told that what God is, what Jesus is about to show him has to do with 
what? Look at that verse right there. What does it say? I will show you what must take place after these things. Jesus is going to show them the future. How many of you would love to see the future? How many of you, I I don't know about you, I love movies about time travel. I love movies about time travel. And who was it? I think it was um, S.H.I.E.L.D. or or what's that that TV? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And they played around with this concept of time in their last season. And it was kind of cool going back and forth and such. But I I just love that. Maybe, uh, you know, like a time machine. And and some of you, you, you've read that book and, and you enjoy it. John is now about to get a glimpse, well, like a lot of glimpses, of what's going to happen in the future. But those visions about the future don't start until chapter 6. So Jesus, here's what I'm saying. Jesus is inviting, come on up here, John, and I'm going to show you the future. But for the next two chapters, he has a vision of the throne room of God. Can you imagine, like, halfway through chapter 4, come on, Jesus, I thought you were going to show me the future. I'm, like, really excited and... (sighs) Really? Just, I mean, the throne room of God, that's it? That's all you've got for me? Come on, let's move along. I mean, there's a purpose for what Jesus is showing him, and he takes two chapters. The first chapter is Jesus gives him this vision of Four living creatures and the 24 elders gathered around the throne and they are worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And then in chapter five that we're not going to look at today, the focus is the lamb of God. And this lamb is standing in the center of the throne and it becomes all about him. Why is it that when Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you what's going to take place in the future, but before I show you that, You need to see this. And it's the throne room of God. John sees things in the throne room of God and he is able to gain a big picture perspective of what is about to be revealed to him. This throne room of worship is absolutely imperative for John to get the big picture. Over 25 years ago, my Phillies, who didn't make it to the playoffs, my, my Phillies were in the playoffs. They actually made it to the World Series. They lost a lot of games to get there. But you see, every team did. You're a good team if you break 500. Okay, That means you win most of your games. You're a good team. You may not make it to the playoffs. The Phillies won most of their games this year. They didn't make it to the playoffs. But their focus, as they're going throughout the season, could have been every single game that they lost. And if they did that, it would have been a total distraction. They needed to be able to see the big picture. And eventually, they got that big picture. This is a baseball from the 1994 Philadelphia Phillies. All of the teammates signed it. This was actually given to me by my niece. And... These, these Phillies' names are signed on here, and they actually made it to the World Series. I'm not going to tell you how that World Se- Series turned out, but they made it, okay? And, yeah, oh well. But this says to me that throughout the season, their focus wasn't on all of those losses. Now, I don't remember how many. I would venture to say it was over 60 or 70 losses. But remember, they play, what is it, 160 games a year? Crazy. It goes from March through the end of September, and if you're in the playoffs, it goes throughout October. I mean, that, that's what, seven, eight months of baseball. Whew. You can't get distracted by the loss, by the small picture. But you see, that's all that you have. You have your perspective. You are one person in this universe, and you see what you see. Cole, you see only what you see. You can't see life through my eyes. Jenny Rose, you see life through your eyes. And Diego, you see life through your eyes. Tim, through your eyes as well. And it's different than what I see. But John is invited up into heaven to see what is about to take place in the future from God's perspective.
He sees the big picture. So why is this necessary? And I'm going to walk you through, like, I'm just going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to walk you through 15 chapters of Genesis, excuse me, of Revelation, because it is all about God's judgments upon the earth for 15 chapters. But before he gets to those 15 chapters, he in essence is saying, John, I need you to come up here and I need you to see something to prepare you for all of that. And I'm going to suggest to you that every single one of us, and we're going to look at this big picture for the next two, today and next week, we need that big picture. We need to be able to see this because what's going to happen is a whole lot of pain, church. It is a whole lot of pain poured out upon mankind. And is God just in doing this? Who are you, God? We're going to see how the people respond. The people respond according to their pain, out of their pain. And if we're not careful, we can do that too. John needed a throne room scene to understand with proper perspective the next 15 chapters. So why is it then that Jesus gives John this vision, this throne room heaven vision for two chapters before showing him the next 15 chapters of judgment? <clears throat> Number one, I, and, and if you want, go ahead and turn to chapter six. But number one, we need to understand Revelation's judgments. And I'm not going to spend long on this. I mean, obviously, books are written on this. I just want you to get an overview of this. There's actually 20 judgments. You have seven seals, and each seal represents, you know, not a seal, you know, a seal as in the thing that seals that we're going to learn about in chapter 5 that seals this scroll that Jesus has given. Seven seals. Each of those seals represents a judgment. The seventh seal, so you know, is actually seven judgments in itself. They call them the seven trumpets. So you have the seven seals, but the seventh seal is seven trumpets. Just like a trumpet gives a warning call for a raid or something bad that's about to happen, a siren that sounds, you know, there's a fire, whatever it is. That's what these trumpets are. They're sounding God's judgment. And then we have seven bowls of judgments. Then we have a few things thrown in there like a red dragon and a beast and a false prophet and a harlot who represents the great city of Babylon. And what is this all about? And they're all symbolic but they are judgments upon the earth. Very quickly, just very quickly, let me walk you through these things. Number one, three questions. Three questions. Is Revelation in chronological order? Because if Revelation is in chronological order and we can piece it together, we can look at, okay, here we are in these judgments. Are we in the end times? Now, many of you have heard people give talks that Revelation is a roadmap to the end times. I'm going to suggest to you that it is not. Now, I'm not saying that there is nothing about the end times in Revelation. We use the term apocalypse. I'm not saying that there's not. We're actually, I'm going to read to you in just a moment a, a couple of verses that actually are about the apocalypse. But is Revelation in chronological order? Because if it is... Maybe it becomes this roadmap to the end times. And we get all caught up in all of these end times events, and every generation believes they're in the end times. And we may be, church, don't get me wrong, we may be in the end times. We may be just a few years or just a few days before Jesus comes back. But I don't know. But if you ask certain people in this world, biblical scholars, they will say, oh, absolutely, let me prove to you that we are. I'm going to suggest to you, well, maybe not. Because Revelation is not in chronological order, okay? And it is therefore not a roadmap to the end times. Let me show you something, if I could. Just give me a, a moment here. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. I'm going to read that. This is the sixth seal. How many seals are there? There are seven. This is the sixth one. I'm going to read it to you. Are you ready? It says, I watched as he opened, Jesus did, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. 
Then the sun turned black like sackcloth made of gold hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What does this sound like to you? Sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? And that's because it is. This is a picture that John has. It's the sixth seal. It's a picture of the end of the world. But wait a second. Remember I said there's 20 judgments. This is only number six. And it's the end. We're already to the end of the world? What? Wait a second. Does everything happen in the last 60 seconds then? <laughs> All of these judgments, judgments? No, they don't, okay? Because these judgments are just not in chronological order, okay? The, the second thing that we need to ask is, is Revelation all about the apocalypse, the end times? I mean, look there in the beginning of chapter four, chapter six. We see he has a vision of four horses, four horsemen. What do we call those four horsemen? Somebody help me. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. There we go. Everybody knows this. And as a result, the vast majority of Christianity reads through this from chapter 6 on. And, well, hello, of course, it's the apocalypse. But only because of that expression. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Can I suggest to you that they are not about the apocalypse? And I'm going to challenge you. Read through Revelation, and, and I, I want you to try and prove me wrong. That, that's going to force you to dig in, and here's what I want you to ask. Is this book of Revelation, is it about the end times? The, four, the first horse. The first horse is a white horse, and he represents conquest. Is that just going to happen in the end times? Because there's nothing in here that says that it's going to happen at the end of time, at the end of this age. Conquest has been throughout at this age. How about the red horse? The red horse represents war. How long have we had war? It's not just going to happen in the end of the age. There's going to be a battle, Armageddon. But let me just tell you this. War has been taking place throughout this age. The third one is a black horse, and he represents famine. Is famine just going to happen at the end of the age? He's been happen it's been happening throughout this age. Same with the last one, the pale horse. He represents death. Specifically, it says death by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Just at the end of the age? No. See, these are not the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are the four horsemen that God has sent Jesus, has sent throughout the earth, throughout the time from John on to the end of the age as judgments upon the earth. Judgments upon the earth. They are not apocalyptic. Oh, but don't get me wrong. At the end of the age, we're going to see all four of these. But you see, we're experiencing them now. And we have been for over 2,000 years. Okay. All right, third question. Now that we have that, what is the purpose of all of these judgments? Is God just up in heaven and he is so ticked that he's throwing a child's temper tantrum and he says, well, yeah, well, I'm going to teach you. And he's just one after the other. He's just sending down lightning rods and, or lightning bolts and, and just destroying people and creating tidal waves. There's one apocalyptic movie about a tidal wave because a, an asteroid hit the earth and the tidal wave swept over America and everybody, well, maybe everybody, just about everybody died. See, with all these apocalyptic uh, uh, movies out there, it always seems that people live afterwards. Can I just tell you this, that when the end comes, ain't nobody living. Those, we will all be in heaven and we will all be judged. That's the end, okay? So what are the purposes of these judgments? This is absolutely crucial, actually, for us to understand this throne room vision that we just read in chapters four and five. So why is God doing this? First, I want you to look at the fifth seal. Chapter six, the fifth seal. I want you to, I'm just going to read verse 10. You can read the other verses, but just verse 10 I'm going to read to you because these are martyrs. 
These martyrs, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And his response was, not until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, the rest of the martyrs throughout the age, as they had, excuse me, as they had been, was completed. Not yet. Not yet. In essence, there are more of my saints that are destined to die. Wow. Part of the reason for these judgments is that the world has so rejected God and rejected Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, if the world hates me, how are they going to treat you? What did Jesus say? They're going to hate you too. The world hates you. If you are a follower of Jesus and you don't cover it up, the world is going to hate you. That was Jesus' promise. If you're going to follow me and you're going to live your life the way I am choosing to live mine, the world will hate you. Because you're going to be constantly living a life of righteousness, calling people to live the right way. Not a popular idea in our day. Don't judge me, right? Tell you what, we live in a day in which the world does not want to know the truth. And the way they cover that up is, well, you know what, Cole, you have your truth, and it's just different than my truth. May, see, you have your truth, hon, but my truth is different. <laughs> we have never, in all of humankind, we have never defined truth that way, but we do in our day today because we don't want to hear the truth. Martyrs are because the world hates you. The world hates followers of Jesus because the world has hated God. They have hated Jesus. They want to create, their, they want to create God in their own image. They want to create Jesus in their own image and who they think he is. I don't need to go anywhere outside of this book right here to tell me who Jesus is and who God is. It's right here. We're going to get a glimpse of God in just a moment. That's so important. But you know what? The first reason why God tells us that he is needing to pour out all of these judgments, 20 of them, is to avenge the blood of his saints. You have killed them, and I will avenge this earth. The second thing, this is, and if, if we miss this, Man, we're, we're going to miss so much in, in what God is trying to accomplish in our generation. Are you ready? I want you to turn to, to Revelation 16. This is where it becomes very highlighted. Again, the question is, why is it that God is judging the earth? An entire, almost an entire book from chapter 6 through chapter 20 with the great white throne judgment. What is with all of these judgments? Avenging the saints. Now listen to this. Remember I said that there were seven seals and then there were seven trumpets and, now, and then there were seven bowls of God's wrath. Chapter 16 is about those bowls. In verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, it is about the fourth bowl. It's one of the judgments. And it says, they were seared, excuse me, let me back up to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. I think it's a little bit more than a sunburn. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed God, excuse me, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Look at the next one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony. And what did they do? Again, they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And we could go on. There's actually at least four, if not more, of these examples of God pouring out judgment and the world kind of stood there shaking their fist at God saying, who do you think you are? 
I thought if you're God, you're supposed to be down here in control of all of this and look at our lives. Wow, God, I thought you were so good. I thought you were so just. And there is an anger so that they actually do what? They curse God. They curse him and they do not repent. So what is the second purpose for these judgments? See, these judgments are given so that the people of the earth would repent. But so many of them, they dig their heels in the ground and they say no. And they're angry with God. And they refuse to repent and they only curse him to his face. So many examples of this in which God pours out judgment and the people don't repent. Can I give you an example? And there are many I could give, but in which a nation did repent. Now, last week, I mentioned Argentina. God poured out his judgment on Argentina. They lost the Falkland War. And as a result of that nation being humbled, I mean, the Falkland Islands were right off their coast, granted a few hundred miles, but right off their coast. It's only about that, that far off the coast on a small map, by the way, just so you know. England was like that far away on a, on a small map. The nation was humbled. God, in that decade, brought three million people to Christ. Let me give you another example, Korea. North and South Korea are fighting each other. The U.S. is backing South Korea for democracy. North Korea is being backed by China. Who wins that war? Nobody does. Nobody does. Technically, South Korea didn't sign the agreement, and, and technically, they're still in, at war, still at a Cold War. And so, you know, there's this no man's land between those, the North and the South. The North, North Korea is entrenched in communism. And the only pictures, by the way, that you will ever see of North Korea are planned filtered pictures that would give you the impression of prosperity and they are far from prosperity. Far from prosperity. South Korea. South Korea was humbled. They thought for sure they would win this war and they did not. A man challenged them. Right now is the opportunity for missionaries to go into Korea and preach the gospel. After World War II, the same challenge was given to missionaries concerning Japan, and they didn't do it. Where's Japan today? They are still very atheistic. I guess the missionaries learned their lesson. They went into Korea, and they began to preach the gospel. Now, the gospel had been proclaimed in South Korea, but after the Korean War, far more. Can I just tell you this? That if you were to look at the religious or the, uh, well, the, the Christian landscape of South Korea, they have the largest churches in the world, hundreds of thousands. So many, I don't know what the percentage is, maybe I should have looked that up. So many are Christians. And I don't just mean they, they name Jesus on their lips, but they are sold out for Jesus. God brought judgment on a nation but many were come, many came to Christ as a result. We call this, as you look through the Bible, it, we see it throughout the Bible. It's called redemptive judgment. Write that down. Redemptive judgment. That is the second purpose for these judgments throughout Revelation. It's redemptive. It is to bring people to this place where they realize life is not worth living apart from God. And there's something that should stir within them that says, if God is doing this, maybe I should respond to this God. But so many times, no, they refuse and they instead curse him. But that's the second thing. God is redemptive in these judgments. Redemptive in his judgments. Let's go back to the original question. Why the throne room scene of chapters 4 and 5? 
Now that we understand why God is going to show John all of these judgments in 15 chapters, what should John's perspective be? Better, what should your perspective be? And I don't mean just with regard to judgments that are upon our world today, like COVID. But I mean even personal tragedies in our own life. And I'm not saying that they're judgments. But there is a purpose in them. And we're going to see two things in this chapter. Okay? Right now, let me remind you, some of us, there's pain in your life. It's hard for you to even hear from God. It's hard for you to even be focused sitting here. But God wants to give you this big picture. This big picture of Revelation 4. This big picture of worship. This big picture of worship. We see someone sitting on a throne. We see a rainbow encircling the throne. 24 elders seated around the throne. And I'm going to suggest that these 24 elders, they're dressed in white and they each have a gold crown. That crown, there's two types of crowns. There's the diadem, which is the royal crown. And then there's the, what the Greek says is the stephanos or the victor's crown. We see both in Revelation, but this one here is the victor's crown. They're not kings, per se, wearing the diadem type of crown. They are victors. They have overcome. Remember all those seven letters? To him who overcomes, these 24 elders are overcomers, and they're dressed in white. Only saints are pictured this way in Revelation. I believe these are 24 representatives of Old Testament and New Testament believers, followers, pursuers of God, true pursuers of God. All right? And then we have four living creatures. Wow. And the way he describes them, we kind of step back and it's like, wow. Now, I'm not going to get into all the symbolism that's in here. We could do that. But I want to focus, if you will, on this big picture. What is God trying to show John that is just so important. The four living creatures, what do they do? They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They are in essence saying, John, this God that we are worshiping, he is holy and he is just. He is just. He does nothing wrong. He is pure good. So for the inhabitants of the earth, to kind of fold their arms or shake their fist and say, curse you, God. Wait a second. See, he is totally just in doing this. Let me bring that home to you right now. When you're going through your pain, and it's so hard to focus on anything but the pain, God is wanting to speak two truths to you. Here's the first one. He is just. He's not just just, but see, he's good. Because that means to, to be just, to be holy, means that you are, you are it, it just doesn't mean he's angry with sin, but his character is perfect. He is good all the time, not just part of the time, because he is holy. He doesn't deviate from that goodness. He doesn't deviate from his love for you. He's holy. He's just. And so when you're going through what you're going through, know that God is permitting this and it has to be for such a good purpose. But many times you will not see that good purpose because you have the small picture. God understands this. God under Jesus stepped into flesh just like you and me. He understands pain. When one of his closest friends, Lazarus, died, he wept. He felt the pain for his two sisters and those gathered around him. He understands your pain. And this very same Jesus invited John up and said, John, I just need you to get this big picture. Because in the world, we're going to have stuff like COVID. And I'm not saying that everybody who has died from COVID, you know, they must not be Christians. Of course, that's not true. But there's a big picture here. 
And I believe that because of COVID, God is wanting to shake up the earth just like he did throughout Revelation, throughout the church age. And we're not going to just experience COVID. Now we're into the Delta, um, what do they call it? The Delta variant, thank you. The Delta variant. And maybe there's going to be an Epsilon or, you know, other type of variants. Maybe there's going to be a COVID-20 and a COVID-22 and a, you know, maybe there's going to be other diseases, other plagues. Do you realize that back during the Middle Ages, that when the Black Plague came, one third of Europe died? A third of them. Can you imagine if a third of America had died? We're looking at around 100 million Americans dying. And not just adults, but children as well. Wow. COVID hasn't come close to the Black Plague. But I believe God is still using it redemptively. He is still calling nations, humbling them, but calling them. And can I just speak a personal opinion at this point? I can't help but wonder why was there a focus on so much of this in Italy? And maybe it's because Italy, how Catholic it is, and how much they should be treasuring the word, God is saying, guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. It is about Jesus. It's not about Mary. It's not about the relics. It's not about, you know, touching statues and all of this. It is about Jesus. It is all about him. And I believe that God, through this, is just saying, Italy, wake up and repent and come back to me. God, but God is doing that to America, too. God is doing that all over the world. And many people, they're just shaking their fists. How dare you? Because they lost loved ones. And I get that. I get the hurt and the pain. But God is permitting this, and he's saying, come back to me. Come back to me. I am just in what I am doing. I am good all the time. And the personal pain you're going through, see, God is good even then. The second thing that we see is that whenever the four living creatures worship, it's like a spontaneous thing. The 24 elders, they fall down, they take their crowns, and they cast it before the throne of God. And they say, they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God. Do you know what that word worthy means? And it means the same thing in Greek as it does in English. It means you have infinite worth. You are valuable. Why? Because it goes on and talks about him as the creator, the one who superintends his creation. The one who is, who is not just just, but he has purposes. God didn't create the earth knowing that man would fall. Did you realize that? God created Adam knowing that Adam would fall. Did God create Adam just to lose him and to lose a whole human race? He had a plan. And that plan was to win the people of the earth back to himself. To win their heart. And so he sent Jesus. So he, in essence, is saying, this creator, he has a purpose. And the 24 elders are saying, we trust you. You are worthy. And they cast, that, those crowns represent everything throughout life that they had earned or won. All of the triumphs, all of the good things that they have done. All of the talents that they used. And people stood back and said, that's amazing. All of those, they cast it before the throne, because God, the one sitting on the throne, he's the one who is worthy, not me. He's the one who is worthy. And they have, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they have the big picture, church. They have the big picture. Let me give you an example of this. If you were to go back to Psalm 73, I'm not going to read it to you. You can, you can write it down and read it maybe later today. Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, David is the author and he looks around him, and he sees the wicked prospering. And he's frustrated. He's not only frustrated, but he's jealous. 
Look at this. I mean, they get everything they want, it seems, but they're wicked. I don't get it, God. With their money, they buy, buy all, you know, they, 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 they pay for doctors to take care of them. They're healthy. They don't go through struggles. They have it on easy street. But they're wicked. God, I don't get this. And you can feel this sense of frustration welling up in him as he's writing this psalm. But halfway through the psalm, here's what it says. But then, but then I entered the sanctuary and I understood. They have their end. See, God is on the throne, and he as the creator is in control of all of these things. He has a plan, and he's working that plan out, and it is redemptive. And even in your small life, and in my small life, God is working out something so amazing, so beautiful, because he is holy, just, and good, and he does not change. And he is the creator, as the 24 elders are saying, and he has amazing purposes for not just the earth, but for you personally. John needs to know this. John is not going to, if he did not have this vision, he would look at all 15 chapters of judgment, one after the other, and just say, God, is there no hope? Are we just destined for the next however hundreds or thousands of years to just be destroyed because of your judgment? And God would say to him, oh, John, I need to show you something. And then with this throne room scene, the big picture that Psalm 23, David finally got. He got the big picture when he went into the sanctuary and God would say to John, now let me give you the big picture. Because that big picture is found in this throne room scene of worship. We're going to see a little bit more of it in chapter five. But in this throne room scene of worship, that's where they recognize God, you are in control. You are just and good, and your purposes are perfect. Now, can you recognize that for your personal life, the pain that you're experiencing right now? Physical pain or spiritual pain or emotional pain? Can you see the big picture? Because pain causes us to turn inward. When I had that pain in my shoulder... That's all I could think about. When I needed to set my mind at task to, 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 to plan a Bible study or think about other, I couldn't do it because I was so focused on this pain in my shoulder. And I had a small picture, if you will. God wants to give you a big picture today. That picture is right here of who God is. This world is not spiraling out of control. It's not as if God created mankind and it, well, just one bad thing happened, to sin just multiplied over generations and it's out of control and he can't stop it. Kind of like a train as it's coming down a mountain and it loses its brakes and it's just out of control. That is not where the world is destined, church. God has a plan and God has a plan for your life and all the junk, all the pain you're experiencing in your life. See, you are not a train out of control. God has this big picture. And he is simply asking us, can you step up here? Come up here. That's what he says here in verse one or two. Come up here, John, and let me show you something. That's his invitation to you this morning. Let me show you something. I am so mighty. I am so worthy of your worship because I am not against you. I am working all of this out for good and it is so good. Or you can make the choice. And just like we read later on in like John, Revelation 16, they cursed God and refused to repent. And by that, they stayed with their little small picture and all the pain in their life, and they refused to see things from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. You know, we can get caught up in the the little losses in life. And, and let me just, I don't, I don't mean to demean that because some of these little losses are very hurtful and very painful, okay? But if you choose to focus on them day after day after day, 
It is like that pain in your shoulder or that pain in your life that's gnawing away, and you cannot see anything else but that pain. And Jesus is saying, I have a totally different perspective for you. Totally different. Can you embrace that? Can you see it from his perspective? And I'm going to just say it, it's amazing. Not just this big picture that he's telling us to have, but literally in the context of worship. And as we engage in worship, instead of being focused on our little pain, but now choosing to focus on him, when we worship, just like the psalmist said, when I entered your sanctuary, then I understood. Then I had your view of all of this, God. And I declared that is good. Can you just stand with me? Let's just ask God to, if our heart needs to change right now, that we're willing to repent, that we're willing to just say, God, I've, just, I've been so focused on my pain. I'm going to see things from your perspective now. It's the big picture that he is good all the time, that he is sovereignly in control, and he is working all of this out, not just on the grand scheme of things with the world, but in the small things. Your life, he's working it out. You, you can't see it, but he's working it out. He's working it out. Which a tragedy for you to shift into neutral because you're so focused on your present pain. And I don't mean in any way to diminish the seriousness of that pain. And at the end of your life, you look back and you say, wow, that's all I ever did. I spent my whole life just thinking about this personal hurts and the anger towards this friend that betrayed me. And I lost perspective. And I wasted my life because of it. Father, Help us in our pain today. Help us be able to see things from your perspective. God, it, it is so hard because the pain is so intense. God, in your mercy, please help us guard our heart. Give us eyes to see just like John did. And heal this wounded heart. Please, Father. We want your perspective. Help us see Jesus as he truly is. And I just ask you, Father, right now, settle every single one of our hearts. Bring healing to those hearts where they're hurting invite us up invite us up to where you are right now seated on your throne God you're so good continue throughout this week to speak truth to our hearts Lord please would you do that in Jesus name I ask amen